It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We continue our conversation with Danny Ainge, what it's like to win a title at the Old Garden, the loss of Len Bias, and playing jokes with exploding cigarettes on Johnny Most. It's the Tuesday Locked On Celtics podcast. Millies, let's go. John Corrales of MassLive.com here welcoming you back to another Lockdown Celtics podcast and saying thank you once again for making this podcast part of your daily routine. We are continuing the conversation with Danny Ainge, which started yesterday. I had an hour-long conversation with him over the weekend. I broke it up into two pieces. Yesterday, you got uh, Larry Bird and the the first championship, that 1984 series against the finals, Gerald Henderson steal, Kevin McHale's sickle of Kurt Rambis. And we left the conversation yesterday at how much Danny Ainge just enjoyed that play. So in this podcast, we get into a lot of the other things from the 80s, the winning a title at the Old Garden, what that's like, the I Hate Danny Ainge shirts, Bill Walton as a teammate, the tragedy of Len Bias, and joking around with Johnny Most, including exploding cigarettes and letting him burn himself on the plane. It's wild. It's a different era. But again, we pick up the conversation after he just explained how much he loved the Kevin McHale clothesline of Kurt Rambis. I can hear the joy in your voice as you recall that. Um, and it reminds me of when you talk about why, why Red Arback loved you, that you're an instigator. This is the type of stuff that kind of excites you, right? This is bringing it to like this modern day Celtics. This is why there's like an affinity for like Marcus Smart and the plays that he makes. Like you, you enjoy those kinds of plays. Yeah, I, you know, I always have. And I think that, you know, the game is different today, obviously, than it was then. But I do I do enjoy those types of plays. And I feel like, you know, I, in my opinion, you don't need to make dirty plays and try to, you know, injure players. That one looked a lot worse than it probably was because Rambus was, you know, up in the air a little bit or on one leg. But I think that, you know, you've got to make guys earn them. You know, and, and you know, you've heard, we've heard it a million times in Celtics history and other teams, you know, have adopted the same types of patterns as you don't give up lands under any circumstance. You don't give a man ones and you don't give them lands. And um, so that was just that was just an unwritten rule that we had that we talked about, you know, periodically throughout the year. And after game three, it was like so embarrassing because, I mean, you got Magic Johnson looking off guys throwing in Byron Scott, James or uh, James uh, Worthy dunking on us from the free throw line. I mean, it was it was bad. 
And, um, I, you know, everybody was embarrassed. I don't think that Larry's words inspired us. I think that that film and that effort in game three inspired us. And uh, we responded to the adversity and came back and won a, a big game four. And, uh, you know, spurred on by that play by Kevin. And, you know, that led us to the big victory in game five at home in the, in the hundred degree weather, um, <laughs> outside heat. And, you know, it was, and then we were able to win a game seven and in back in Boston. So it was, you know, we were very fortunate to win in 1984. And I think that Henderson seal was the biggest play of all. What's it like winning a championship in Boston in game seven on that floor, uh, fans flood the floor, which you can't do anymore. What's that moment like? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, in in the Boston Garden, it was, you know, you got the smoke in in the upper half of the arena. You have fans that are creeping out onto the court before. You can't even, like, inbound the basketball because the fans are already getting so excited. You can just feel it. And in the old Boston Garden, they were right on top of you. And, um, even, and, but yeah, I don't know. It felt like they had like six security guards and <laughs> 15, 16,000 people that are going to break through the barriers. Yeah. Security wasn't great. But, uh, uh, I re- I remember, I remember, um, being there and I remember like I was trying to get the ball after the game and I think Greg Kite and Gerald Henderson both had the same thoughts and one of them got the ball. I don't even remember who got it, but. I remember seeing a film of that game and I remember Larry like running like a uh, running back from the three yard line on a fourth and goal and like (laughs) through the crowd, just knocking people over and people flying off of him. And you can see his blonde hair creeping through the top and getting back to the locker room. But I mean, it was just sheer joy and excitement, and the, and the Celtics fans were were crazy. It was a blast. Let me ask you, what's more satisfying, winning as a player or winning in two thousand eight as an executive? You know, winning winning as an executive was more satisfying for me, I think, because as a player, you know, you have your teammates and coaches and so forth that you know you're in this together, and you build these bonds that are great and you know you're trying to create you know live out your dreams and your goals as an individual player and as a teammate and and that's all great and that that's unbelievable experience but as an executive you're you see a much bigger picture you see a much bigger people involved from the ownership to the managing team, to the players and every story of every single player from Leon Poe and Rajon Rondo and Kendrick Perkins, you know, not just, you know, Doc Rivers and KG and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. I mean, it's just, it's so much bigger than that. And so I think that that's, it's more satisfying because you see how satisfied everybody that put in daily work to get us to that point and how every one of those people contributed. And so it was, it was much more satisfying, satisfying to have 
to have that perspective of all of those people that contributed. All right, let's get back on the floor here for the last few years of your career. Um, let, let me ask you first, um, can you explain the I hate Danny Ainge shirt? <laughs> well, I think that after, after I got in the tree Rollins fight, I wasn't really booed much on the road or other places until after that fight, I got in with Tree Rollins. And then after that series, we then went to play Milwaukee. And Larry was out with the flu. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm playing with a stitched up finger that was like bitten to the bone right. by, by Tree Rollins. And so they stitch it very lightly because they don't want infection. I had to get a tetanus shot. I had to get a rabies shot. And Wait, you had to you get know, a rabies they, shot because Tree bit you? Yeah. And and a tetanus shot. So I got so they stitched it um, very loosely, you know, so the, the fluid could drain out and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I'm playing. This is on the middle finger of my shooting hand. So I'm playing with this stitched-up finger and hand. Larry's out in game, I think it was game two. Larry's out with like 104 temperature or something. Anyway, I score like 25 points in the first half of that game against Milwaukee. We get to, we go to Milwaukee and all of a sudden Don Nelson has labeled me the dirtiest player in the NBA, basically. <laughs> or, right. you know, he started the whole tree wrong and Red was really mad at Nelly for that. And, you know, it was, I think Nelly was trying to turn the Milwaukee crowd and the, you know, the NBA crowds against me at that very moment. And, um, it worked, it worked. I mean, the crowd went crazy on me. And then, you know, when we eventually played Detroit, you know, they had, you know, they joined the, that I was this evil, dirty, horrible player, um, for the evil Boston Celtics. And, it caught me off guard, even though I had been booed in, and, uh, you know, in college and in high school and, um, you know, other, other places, like it did actually catch me off guard, but then eventually I, I did embrace it. And, um, so when the whole crowd, or this whole section of people were wearing, I hate this Dan I hate Danny Ainge shirt. I asked them to give me one and I would wear it as I would go shoot in warmups before the game. And, I think, and I actually developed a pretty good relationship with those people. It was fun. It was, and, and I learned that it's not personal as much as it's just really fans that are really into the game. So this is the, the that's the 86 season then that's you. Uh... I don't even remember what season that was, but that was 84. I think the tree Rollins fight. Okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't, I, I, you know, I get the 84, 85, 86 seasons mixed up. Some say 87 even mixed up sometimes. So I'm not sure which year that was. I love, I love that shirt. People are still like making that shirt and selling it, which is, which is <laughs> funny. We know we've got to stay home. You can't go out and go to a restaurant. You shouldn't be going from store to store to store. You got to go get your essentials and come home and be safe. So that means you need things delivered. And that's where Postmates comes in. You can get 
basically anything you want. If you're like me, you start thinking about what to eat. Uh, once one meal is over, you're already planning for the next one. So that's why I love using Postmates. They deliver food from any restaurant that I can think of, and it comes right to my door. It's not just burgers. It's not just sushi. It's not just pizza or whatever it is. Uh, they like make life easier with grocery deliveries and convenience store deliveries and clothing store deliveries. You name it. No more trips. You can stay safe. Let them go out and do that work for you. No late night food runs. You don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code LOCKEDONNBA. That's code LOCKEDONNBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmates. NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories, it's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. So 85, you guys lose to the Lakers, and that's your, that's the first home loss to the Lakers uh, ever. Like, the first finals home loss for the Celtics, I think it was. Um, What's it like going from that championship season to that disappointment in 85? Uh, Boston Celtics teams aren't supposed to lose in that situation. Right. Yeah, it it, it was a very difficult time losing. Um, you know, we, we didn't have Maxwell, who was a major, major player for us. Uh, Max was, was never the same after the 84 championship. He had knee surgery and he wasn't the same player. And he was a very important player for us. Um, and, you know, obviously really talented, very good teammate and player. And so that, you know, that le- left us wanting a little bit and we didn't have the same kind of talent um but it was in spite of that after winning game one by 30 something points in that series and everybody basically um calling kareem abdul jabbar you know over the hill i think that was might have been the turning point in the series because 
Kareem was unbelievable after that and, and had a, uh, a, a resurrection in that series that was very impressive and powerful. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, we were very fortunate to win in 84. I actually believe now, not everybody believes this, but I actually thought that in 84, um, the Lakers were a little bit better team than us, although it was very close. And in 85, the same thing, but I thought that that was, that was something, a team that should have won that championship. Um, but like I said, you know, the Lakers were driven and motivated after their tough loss in 84. And um, just like our tough loss in 85, I believe, you know, gave us a tunnel vision purpose in 86. Um, there was, we were not going to lose in 1986. Now that team is, I, I still contend, uh, one of maybe the best regular uh nba team ever assembled not dream team whatever um let's start with 1986 with this what's it like having bill walton as a teammate oh bill was so fun i mean bill you know when bill got there first of all it was great because you know kevin and larry were like my big brothers and max like all those guys were my big brothers and so it was it wasn't fun to see Max go away because he was he was such an entertaining teammate and such a good player. Um, but bringing Bill Walton in, I think that Kevin and Larry and I idolized Bill. Um, you know, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, so Bill and I, I mean, I watched him play throughout his UCLA career in the Pac-8 in those days, and then I saw him play for the Portland Trailblazers and win a championship my senior year in high school. And so he was a legend in my mind, and he was a legend in Kevin and Larry. I think they all looked up to him, just this incredibly talented player. And um, But being the little brother of the team, you know, and getting picked on sometimes by the veterans, when Bill arrived, it, you know, a lot of the attention, he got most of the attention, and the guys left and were probably bored teasing me so much so that we – we all, including myself, started teasing Bill. And he was just fun. Like the guy was, he said some of the funniest things. I remember one day in practice, um, he was playing with the second unit and he's running down the court and ceasing is trying to, you know, pick up, uh, guard me dribbling the ball up the court at full speed and ceasing. And Walton runs through ceasing and knocks him on the ground and, and he trips and stumbles a little bit himself. And he, and he looks at Seasting and he says, you know what the only thing I hate more than guards is backup guards. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, he just said so many funny things like that all the time. Just, but uh, he, he just made us laugh. And, um, you know, obviously he was a great, great passer, rebounder, thinker on the court. Um you know, and his only purpose was to win. Like, he had no other agenda. Bill only wanted to win. Uh, the passing on that team really stands out because you could throw it. I mean, aside from probably Mikhail, everybody else on that team would be a very willing passer. Um, and, you know, I have those visions of 
Bird dumping it into the post and then cutting back door and then Walton kind of just like flicking this little no look pass over his head to to Bird and you know laying it in. Uh, the post play back then is is different. The, the spacing on the floor is ridiculously different than what fans are used to seeing now. I mean, a floor spacer used to be a guy who could hit the mid range jumper. Yeah, so, yeah, the game is so much different. And, you know, in, in the 1980s, all the players then, none of none of them grew up playing with a three-point line in their youth through high school or college or anywhere before. There was no three-point line. So it wasn't until 1980 where there was a three-point line. And um, so that was e- evolving, but very, very slowly over time, the three-point threat. I don't think anybody envisioned in the 1980s that there would be teams in the future that were shooting 53-point shots in a game. <laughs> I, I, you know, like we might have envisioned that that should be used more or it's going to be used more, and you can see that evolving, but I don't think anybody thought it would get to the point that it is today where it's not only a great weapon and you want multiple three-point shooters, but it's also you're the focus of your defense is preventing those open three-point shots. So, yeah, it was a different game, and the spacing was different. There were so many dominant bigs in, in that era. Um, heck, we had three of them on our team, on the, on the same team. So, um, yeah, Seasting was a very good floor spacer for us and shot very, very few threes ever in his career, but was, you know, like money from the top of the key. So, um yeah, spacing was a little bit was was definitely the the court spacing was much much different. But you know the the spacing in the NBA versus college versus international play is those are all way different. Also, even in the same era of today, um, but the players now they have to put a lot more focus on defending the perimeter, which I think opens up the paint a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes in the in the, those areas, you see passes that Walton or Bird or Chief are making and, and DJ are making that are, they're just such tight quarters. There's just not that much room. Like they're great passes in the in just a, a, a small window of completion, and um, it's more like an NFL you know fourth down type of defense. Like how do you get that pass through there? Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, it was like very um, unbelievable passing team, that team. Absolutely. And um, so fun to play with guys that are willing and and not only willing, but creative and incredible visionary passers. Uh, Just on the three thing, in 1987-88, you led the, the NBA with 148 made threes. Uh, and this year, Jason Tatum hit 167 before the NBA went on hiatus. So that's that's the difference. And three guys on the Celtics this year took more threes than you did in the year you led the league in in made threes. So that's just uh, right. But, but let me. But, but here's here's a, an interesting fact. There, John, is that you have. Um. So you said that was 87, 88. That was that was the year you hit 148 threes. Right, and that that was eighty seven, eighty eight. Correct. Season. Yeah. So before, when that season started, the most anybody had made in a season was ninety. Yeah, you hit eighty five the year before, and you went up to one forty eight yeah. the year a year later. 
Yeah, so it was like, um, but 90, I think, was Bird and Daryl Griffin up until that time. And so, like, that's when it just, that was the beginning of it sort of going over the edge. And I think probably the very next year, someone probably made close to 200. And then, it, and then you know, like you say, you got multiple players making 150 or 200. And, yeah, it just started evolving. But that was 87, 88. It, that took a long time for teams to figure it out. But, you know, when you have three and even four in Walton, when you have four post players that score at 60% clip, right? you, you got to think twice about taking shots <laughs> before they touch the ball in the post. Right. It's like, what, what's Danny Ainge doing taking a three? Why don't we get it to uh, Kevin McHale down on the block? Let's try that. First. Exactly. <laughs> uh You're up to date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Here we go! John Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan, rejecting the screen, the Locked On NBA Podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on our social channels at LO Celtics on Twitter and at Locked On Celtics on Instagram. So, that 1986 team. How disappointed were you, or how disappointed was the team to be facing the Houston Rockets instead of the Lakers? You know, I think that we had fought the Lakers the whole time. I don't think anyone was disappointed when you're, you know, playing for a championship. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, we were preparing mentally for the Lakers for sure all year long. I mean, we followed the Lakers and followed what they were doing and. You know, our mindset was still of the pain and suffering that drove us from 1985. And so, yeah, we were motivated to play the Lakers. But, um, you know, by the time we got to the finals, the the Rockets, we knew would be a formidable. I didn't think we were going to lose to the Lakers. And we thought the Lakers were better than the Rockets. So I never once had any doubt whether we were going to beat the Rockets. It was just... um, you know, like we, we, it still didn't prevent us from doing what we needed to do. And so I don't know how disappointing. I mean, I think that there was like, oh, man, we're going to play the Houston Rockets. And it just goes to show you that, um, you know, basketball is a fun game that way. I mean, the Rockets were very talented. They were one of the biggest teams in NBA history, if not the biggest team with a six, eight point guard and Seven four Samson and Elijah one on the front court and, and Rodney McRae at small forward. I mean that was a big big basketball team. Uh, so you guys win this, uh, which is the last championship for a while. Uh, let let me ask a, a more fun question because Robert Parrish, I had Robert Parrish on the podcast a couple years ago, and he said he told me a story about how you replaced. 
Johnny Most's cigarettes with exploding cigarettes on a plane once. Can you confirm that story? <laughs> yeah, that actually did happen. Uh, you know, Johnny Johnny was always out. We he, the bus would always be waiting for Johnny. Every the bus was loaded up, ready to go. You know, the last couple players creeping in, and you know, where's Johnny? Or he's finishing up the cigarette out outside the bus. Um, so I had to sit by Johnny as a rookie in the back of the airplanes in coach. Um, we only had eight first class seats typically, and the rookies got sent to the back of the bus, and I was in the back with Johnny and smoking was legal on the planes. <laughs> so I used to take great satisfaction in Johnny falling asleep with a cigarette sitting on his leg and then a, a burning a hole in his pants. And I would just let it happen. <laughs> and then I would, and then I would laugh and laugh and laugh when he woke up and, uh, like being, with a little burn in his pants and legs. So, um, I, I was a little bit concerned about the explosive just because I didn't want him to have a heart attack. But um, one day I, I took a couple of those little explosives and stuck them in his cigarette and gave his pack back to him. And then uh, when he, when, when that cigarette exploded outside the bus, he came on the bus and was just cursing me out up <laughs> upside down the other. It was, it was a pretty funny experience. Um, so let's let's wrap this up here with your your final year um, with the Celtics because you were traded in eighty uh, eight. So you had two more years with the Celtics here before you uh, end up going what to Sacramento first, right? Yep. Um, that end of the eighties era. Boston Celtics. Um, there's there's tragedy in the the loss of Len Bias, and then there's on court. Everybody's now really starting to get hurt. Uh, McHale playing like a broken foot. I mean, what what's the change there for you guys on the team? Like, let's start with the hearing the news about Len Bias. I mean, how does that hit the team? Well, I think that, um, you know, Lynn Bias was, there was so much excitement and joy and because that was going to be a piece that we could just continue on and have the success of uh, the Celtic dynasty, you know, as Kevin and Larry were aging. But in 1986, you know, we're arguably one of the best teams in NBA history and we're getting the number two pick in the draft. And that guy happens to be a six foot nine athletic freak. Right. And um, it's a perfect guy to come in and, you know, give rest to Kevin and Larry and you know, let them um, not have to carry such a heavy burden night in and night out and prolong their greatness. But that was that was devastating. I mean, that was a devastating moment. I was with Lynn Bias that night and then I got up the next morning. I was on my way to the golf course and a gas station attendant told me what had happened. And I did not believe him. Like I was just with the guy at what, you know, what are you talking about? And anyway, that was just a, a, a that was devastating. And, um, yeah, who knows what would have happened had that not happened, but that was, that was a devastating blow that it's hard to recover from. 
And in 87, you know, you, you know, like, yeah, Kevin's broken foot. DJ had a broken wrist. They were playing, finished out the season playing with that. And, you know, then Larry had two Achilles tendons and back surgery. And, um, you know, by the time I got traded, and, and, and by the way, you know, one of my favorite people that I've ever been around in the NBA, Casey Jones, was no longer our head coach. And it was different. It was a di- it was different now without KC. And um, when I got traded to Sacramento, I felt it was great fortune at that moment in time because I just didn't feel like the Celtics were the same. It was definitely not the same as it was from the moment I got there in 1981, uh, the moment I left in 1980. It wasn't the same as 87, 86, 85, 84, 83. It was completely different feeling about the hope and about the opportunity to win. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate to play two years in Portland with great teams and three years in Phoenix with great teams and get back to the finals a couple more times. And, and, uh, as I, as I left Boston and, you know, those guys, I think might've only won another playoff series, one, one or two more, you would know more than me, but, um, I still kept in good relationship, great, great relationship with especially Kevin and Larry and DJ and um, never felt bitter about it. Like I understood it with the, with the way that they were, um, you know, they needed bigs with the injuries they had to their front court. Like they ended up getting Joe Klein and, and Ed Pinkney, who were the number six, and number eight pick in the draft and very young players. So the the trade made perfect sense. And on top of that, you know, we had the Celtics had Reggie Lewis, who everybody knew that Reggie was going to be good. Like we could tell at a very young age, he wasn't quite ready, but he's going to be a special player. So, you know, by trading me away was, was a very, very logical trade for the Celtics to do at that time and place. And it was, it turned out it was good for me too. It's it's kind of funny to hear you talk because mostly people are you hear about players getting traded and you say, oh, you know, you you keep that in your mind and you want to, you know, prove to them that they shouldn't have traded you next time you play. And it kind of feels like you're like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. I get it. See ya. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I played against uh, the Celtics after I was traded to Sacramento. I think I had thirty nine that game. (laughs) But yeah, there was motivation there. Are you kidding me? Like those guys are my brothers. They're like my big brothers. And yeah, I want to go prove to them I can, you know, I can beat them. And, you know, but I want to earn their respect, whether I'm playing with them or against them. You know, I want to, I want to earn their respect. And so, yeah, I get those, I get all those feelings. And that's why you see so many players play well against their former teams and, and so forth. There is a, there is an extra, importance to those games without question and lastly did you really tell red arback that he should trade larry and kevin yeah i actually so it was a a christmas party for our team and it was just kevin and larry and i and and red came and sat down at our table and we're just sitting there blabbing shooting the breeze and i asked red a question in front of kevin and larry i said red are these stories true? Like you can get Detlef Shrimp and Sam Perkins and, you know, uh, someone else, I can't remember who the player was, you know, 
for Kevin McHale. And Brad acknowledged that, yeah, there was some truth in that. I go, is it true that you can get Chuck Person and <laughs> and uh, all these other guys, Herb Williams and Stepanovich and, you know, for Larry right now? And Red said, yeah, there's truth in that. He goes, I'm not trading you guys. I'm not trading any of you guys. Like, that's not that's not part of who I am or what we do here. And, and uh, anyway, I got a, but I was teasing Red about, oh, man, like, you've got to trade. Look at Kevin. Like, he's not even healthy. <laughs> Look at Larry. Like, what are you, are you kidding me? Like, these guys are in their early 20s, and they're already good players. So anyway, I got a good kick out of that. But I actually did remember that and wondered about that because then eventually I was traded. And like I said, it, you know, it was probably more Jan Volk than Red in those days. Uh, Jan was doing most every, all the day-to-day stuff, mm-hmm. you know, probably from 84, 80. Like, I think Jan probably uh, negotiated the trade for Gerald Henderson to Seattle. Um, you'd have to ask Jan that question, but Jan was a very good general manager. And I thought the trade that he made for me, it, it made perfect sense. And um for their team and where the, you know, with the health of all their players and with Reggie um, coming along and needing to play a lot of minutes. And, and um, I think that those were all, that was good. That was a good time. Good trade. But anyway, Jan, Jan did, doesn't get the uh, credit he deserves for that, you know, Henderson for bias trade because of what happened with bias. But um but I mean, losing losing Len Bias and losing Reggie Lewis are. Reggie was such a great kid. It was so fun being around him when we drafted him in his rookie year, and he's just such a nice human being that had a great temperament, and was going to be a a star for for many more years in the league. And and losing those two kids were were devastating and you know that the Celtics didn't recover from for many many years well I hate to end it on that note but uh yeah that's that's kind of um the 90s are the 90s in Boston Celtics history that's an entirely different story we're going to talk about another time um and that certainly contributed to that but uh your run through most of the 80s with the Boston Celtics was something special uh really want to thank you for taking a few minutes and more than a few minutes, a long time, longer than I expected to, uh, to talk, uh, about that. So thanks a lot for sharing, uh, an hour uh, of your time. Well, thanks, John. You know, it's, it's fun for me to sometimes listen to the different takes that everybody has on these. And it's, it's great because, you know, all of us have our own, our own, um, remembrance of what happened and, our own versions of different stories. And I, I get a great kick out of hearing some of the, uh, hearing Kevin and Larry and Max and everybody share their different versions of the story and, and, and chief, like I get a great kick out of that as, as much as anything. So uh, I guess this, this is my version. A sincere thank you to Danny Ainge who took some time out of his day to really take an hour really to talk about the 1980s, and recall some of the things. Yeah, I feel like an idiot because I I kind of wrapped it up. I, I didn't want to take up too much of his time. There's so many other things that I wanted to ask him, what it was like to be on the floor for that Larry Bird steal. Uh, just I'll have to get back to him on that. But we're going to continue with a lot more 
uh, 1980s. And this is indeed going to span an entire, probably two weeks, because tomorrow on the Wednesday podcast, I'm going to re-release the Robert Parrish interview that we did. It was Jay King and I, before we became Locked On Celtics, it was the Rain and Jays podcast. Uh, I've tweeted out the link. I've put out the link before and try to pump it up, but I realize it hasn't been back out on the feed and a lot more people have subscribed and maybe not everybody has gone back that far. So I'm going to take this opportunity to re-release the Robert Parrish interview and continue the 1980s discussion. Then on Thursday, Tommy Heinsohn will be on the podcast. I had a very long conversation with Tommy Heinsohn today. That's going to be split up over Thursday and Friday because we get into, we we talk about the 80s, but I also get his take on the 70s and coaching and, and so we'll, we'll take a little step backwards on that, uh, 1970s discussion, a little out of order, but you know, you got to do what you can to get Tommy Heinsohn on. So it's a great conversation with Tommy Heinsohn. So all week it's interviews with the people who were there. We have two days of Danny Ainge. If you didn't listen to yesterday's show, download the Monday podcast. Wednesday will be Robert Parrish. Thursday and Friday will be Tommy Heinsohn. It's going to be a great, great week of podcasts here on the Lockdown Celtics podcast. So please subscribe if you haven't already. If this is your first time in, then you've got the whole layout. And then next week we'll continue our conversation. We'll get into some of the nitty-gritty from the outside perspective with me and Mike Dinan and Chuck McKenney of RedsArmy.com. So uh, subscribe. If you haven't shared the podcast with everybody, you should be doing that as well uh, because it's uh, it helps me out, frankly. It helps me out. And if you uh, – the good written reviews, the five-star ratings, the sharing the podcast, I'm here. I'm doing these podcasts for you. I love doing them. I hope you love listening to them. And the only thing I ask is for that little bit of support in sharing the podcast with your friends and giving that five-star rating and good written review on Apple Podcasts especially. Uh, But go ahead and follow on Spotify and do the same thing on Spotify. That's an up-and-coming outlet. Google Podcasts, wherever you can, really, uh, really helps out. And it's the number one – Lockdown Celtics is the number one Boston Celtics podcast in the world. I want to keep it that way. I can only do that with your ratings, with your five-star reviews, and with your shares. So please do that. And now – you can tell your smart device to play the latest episode of Rejecting the Screen. Rejecting the Screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the Screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.